I encourage you to take out a copy of God's Word. His Word is truth. And please turn in that Word, which is truth, to John chapter 17. We're going to be in verses 11 through 17 this morning, page 903. In the Pew Bible, John 11, <clears throat> 7, sorry, John 17, 11 through 17. You may have noticed that we did 10 through 16 last time. We've just shifted one verse over. There's too much that I missed. There's too much that we need to consider to help us understand the oh-so-important John 17, 17. We may be spending some time in John 17, 17, just to prepare you. I want you to have much knowledge of John 17, 17. You know that I highly value knowledge. I love knowing things. I love knowing about things. If you will forgive me a brief, brash brag, but I may be read more books last year than all of you combined in this room. If you add it up and we went around, I might have defeated you all. So I'm just gonna pat myself on the back there for a second now. Again, forgive me. I try not to ever say anything positive about myself in sermon illustrations and talk to my wife. This one may not actually even be positive. I am basically only good at one thing, reading. Am I good at remembering what I read? Am I good at doing anything with what I read? Uh, it's an entirely different question. But at least I'm good at reading books. So a bookstore, any bookstore, is my happy place. I was preaching Wednesday night out at Levittown Baptist, and since I hate traffic as much as I love reading, I took Emma and Lila with me early. We went and we camped out at Barnes & Noble for a while, and I worked, and they played and browsed around. And I love being there, but every time, every time, honestly, I have some sort of flash or brief experience of discouragement as I look around in wonder at all of the books that I never have and never will read, even as someone who reads a lot. I was standing in the history section. I feel like I have a pretty good general grasp of world history, but there was an entire massive book on the Basque people. And I realized that I know basically nothing about the Basque people. It's a small, isolated group in northern Spain. They have their own language. I, I know some of those things. But this entire group of millions of people, I don't know anything about them. And that's just a tiny sliver of the vast amount of knowledge that I do not and never will have. It can be discouraging if you think about it. I love knowledge, but in all honesty, have quite a little bit of it. Because of that, I really appreciate and love the doctrine of the omniscience of God. I love the omniscient God, the God that is all-knowing, who knows all things, who has perfect, complete knowledge of everything. It's mind-blowing if you'll try to step back and wrap your mind around his mind, knowing all of our minds and all things and all contingencies and everything. Romans 11:33. oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 1 John 3, 20, God knows everything. Psalm 1, 47, 5, his understanding is beyond measure. You see, I get many things wrong because there are many things that I do not know. If I had perfect knowledge, I would get more things correct. I often will the wrong things because I lack knowledge. But what if I had perfect knowledge? Would I not then more consistently and correctly will the right things, choose and do and work toward the right things? God does have perfect knowledge. 
Does he not also then always will the right thing? Choose and work always toward the right thing. And does he not necessarily do that for us, his children? So what does this God of perfect knowledge will for you? What does he want for you? You, like me, have little and limited knowledge. It is often sinfully self-tainted knowledge. But what do you will and want for yourself? And what does God, not only the God of perfect knowledge, but perfect power and perfect love, what does he will for you? You probably know where I'm going. I'm leading the witness. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. Because that is what God wills for you. That's what we want to talk about because that's what God wants for you. And I fear that it may be something that we all too little will and want for ourselves. So, sanctification. But we've got to get there. We've got to situate it in the context of John 17 and work hard to understand biblically what sanctification actually is and how it actually happens. Our last point last time was that you are kept. So we need to pick back up there. We've been seeking to better understand and appreciate and then live out our identity in Christ. You are a child of God. You are his That should change and affect everything. Many of our problems are rooted in the simple fact that we do not really understand and appreciate who we are and what we have in Christ. We do not truly know the amazing, life-changing, eternity-securing, joy-producing promises of God and the privileges of being his child. And so our experience often falls so short of our profession. We are seeking to, by the grace of God, bridge that gap. And this most important prayer that has ever been prayed is a great place to do that. This is the perfect God-man at prayer, much of it praying for you and praying for me. What a privilege that is. Christ prays for us. What does he pray for us? We're building toward a focus on verse 17 next week. Let's get there this week. Let's get there by way of four points. First, number one, we've got to get this fixed in our heads. God keeps us. That is my only hope. That is your only hope. And that is good news. Well, second, what does he keep us from? God keeps us from the world and the evil one. Okay, how does he do that? Three, God keeps us by sanctifying us. Well, how does he do that? Fourth and finally, we're going to see that God sanctifies us by the truth. What does God will for you and what is he working toward for you? What do you will for yourself and what are you working toward for yourself? Is it in any way sanctification? Let's read God's word. Uh, John 17, we're going to pick up. Remember three parts. Let's read the whole second part of the prayer. I'm going to read all of six through 19 for you. We're going to focus on verses 11 through 17. This is Jesus praying to the Father. Please pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. John 17, 11, Christ prays. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. 
For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Bow with me. Let's make sure we begin this time with a word of prayer. Father, as we hear, see Christ coming to you in prayer, we come to you in prayer. Father, our prayer is Christ's prayer that you would keep us and that you would sanctify us. Father, our prayer for this uh, moment is that you would sanctify us in the truth, this word that is your truth. Father, this entire period of time could be a waste apart from you and apart from your spirit working through your word. Father, I believe that your word is living and active. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that your word does not return to you void. And so we ask that you would help us, I ask that you would help me in the preaching of your word. I ask that you would help me and every single one of us in the hearing of your word, in the believing of your word, in the doing of your word. Father, please do for us and in us and through us in this time what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. Father, show us Christ. Fill us with such joy, the promises that we have for us in these words. Father, may more and more what Christ Praise for us here be the defining realities of our lives. We want to live in light of the fact that we are kept and that we are sanctified by your grace. Father, please help us now. Help us to focus on your word. Help us to love your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Point number one, God keeps us. You know by now that John 17 is the high priestly prayer. This is the Son of God coming to the Father God in prayer moments before his betrayal, his suffering, and death. So these are Christ's final words before his great work, and they are words of prayer. And remember, prayers reveal priorities. What do you pray for yourself? What do you pray for those whom you most love? What you pray and what you pray most reveals what you prioritize. I was working on this and thinking about this, sitting in Barnes & Noble. I was thinking about, about my prayers for my girls. I was thinking through some of what those prayers consist of. I realized I've never once 
prayed that my girls would be professional athletes. I have never once prayed that they'd be cool and popular. Uh, please know. You may not believe me on this one. I've also never once prayed that they would attend the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I've never actually, I've never prayed for that. I've prayed specifically for their health and healing when they're sick. No parent can watch their child suffer and not pray for that. But as I was thinking about this, I realized that I don't really pray all that much specifically for my children concerning their day-to-day -day earthly lives. Now listen, I'm not necessarily defending that. I'm confident that I am not a perfect prayer parent and not even close. I could and should pray more for my children. But I do pray daily for the salvation of my children's souls. I do pray daily that God would save them and cause them to be born again and that I would be a help and not a hindrance in that. I pray that I would be able to discern that when it comes by the grace of God. I do pray daily that God would help them to not love the world that I loved for so long, that he would keep them from the world and the evil one and that he would sanctify them and make them holy, that they would grow up to be young women who love the Lord and are like the Lord. And in that at least, with all my prayer imperfections, I'm at least somewhat trying to imitate Christ here and what he prays for us, his children. What do you pray for? Prayers reveal priorities. Jesus does not pray for your health. He does not pray for your wealth. He does not pray for your earthly happiness or prosperity. Of all of those things that most occupy our prayers, Christ prays in this prayer for none of them. We should want our prayers to more reflect the prayers of the perfect God-man. We should want what he wants and will, what he wills, for he is perfect. And as we'll see again, verse 13, he wants and is working for his perfect joy to be fulfilled in us. We should all want that. So what does he pray for us here? It's generally considered that there are two petitions in this second part of Christ's prayer. Remember, first part of the prayer, Christ prays for himself, one petition, that he would be glorified. Now he's praying directly for his disciples, the eleven, but also indirectly for us as well. And there are generally uh, said to be two petitions in this part of the prayer. Keep them, verses 11 and 15, and sanctify them, verse 17. I want to argue this morning that this is actually ultimately one petition. Jesus is not praying for two separate things, but he is praying for one thing by means of the other thing. And I will explain. Let's start with the keep. Look at verse 11. We have spent many weeks on the first five and a half verses of this prayer. Remember, he starts praying for us. Five and a half verses, no petitions. Six through 11 is just reminding us of who we are, who he's praying for, why he's praying for us. Uh, look at verse 9, actually. Start in verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So there's a specific people that Christ prays for and a specific people that Christ does not pray for. We keep coming back to this. This is so important. All We've got all our different identity groups, and here's what identifies us, and we're splintering, and we're, here's all the groups. Biblically, ultimately, two peoples, Christ's people, not Christ's people, the righteous and the wicked, the church and the world. And we forget this both to our peril and the world's peril. And we're really going to need this when we get to verse 18 and our mission. 
But we finally get his petition, his request for his people. Now look at the second half of verse 11. Here's what it is. He says, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The unity, the oneness is going to be a big theme in the third part of the prayer. So we're going to save that for them. Now look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. All right, so we're going to focus on the from in point two, but first, the keep. What is Jesus asking? What does it mean to keep? I am rereading, I just finished it yesterday, actually, uh, the rereading the Fellowship of the Ring, because Emma's reading it for the first time, and I want to enjoy it together with her. It's pretty long and slow, and sometimes would say parts of it are very boring, but it's not. Um, but so because of that, I bribed her with the movie. Read the book, and we can watch the movie together. But I kept thinking of the scene while I was working on this. Gandalf, he comes with great energy and urgency to the little hobbit Frodo, and he says, keep it secret. Keep it safe. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. There's this ring of great power and great value, my precious. I wear $3 Amazon rubber rings, so no, no value, no, no pressure here. But this ring is of great value, and so it is imperative that Frodo protect it and guard it. And so Jesus tells us in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them, same word, in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them. And so to keep most simply is to protect. But interestingly, in John's gospel, every other time this same Greek word is used, except for these three times, it's used in a more metaphorical sense. Jesus has just used this same word in verse 6. We read it. Look at verse 6, where he says of the disciples, they have kept your word. Same word. And remember what a kindness that phrase is. The disciples are a mess. They are constantly questioning, sometimes even opposing, about to be abandoning, and yet Jesus still says of them, they have kept your word. That's great news for us in all of our imperfections and all of our weaknesses. In Christ, by grace, it can still be said of us that we have kept his word. But again and again, Jesus uses this word in this way. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Same word. So to keep there is to observe the word kind of originally meant to, to pay close attention to, to attend to. So Jesus says keeping the word is he, it's hearing it, it's trusting it, it's, it's doing it. And that's going to be really important as we get to the truth, God's word, that is the means of our sanctification. But so you can see how this guard word is a really good word when it comes to what God does for us. He attends carefully to us. He, he watches over us. And as he is love and loves his children and he seeks the good of his children because that's what love is and does, that means that God's attending to and watching over and guarding us is a very active thing. He knows his people. He protects his people. He leads his people. He feeds his people. It's hard not to read Jesus' words here and think of chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Right? A shepherd is a keeper of sheep. A shepherd keeps his sheep. 
And it's impossible to read John 10 and not think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? To want is to lack or to need. David says that with God as shepherd, I lack, I need nothing. Do you in any way believe that you lack and need nothing? You're a liar if you say yes. Because all of us are tempted. No, no, it's this, I need this thing. And there's this thing. And there's this thing. David said, in Christ, I lack nothing. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Which is crazy. Because death, the most frightening of things and the most certain of things, you can get around taxes these days. You cannot get around death. It is the one thing that is certain in life. Thus, Matthew Henry, it ought to be the business of every day to prepare for our last day. Hey, is that your business on any day ever? Do you live this day in light of the last day? In any, this could be my last sermon that I ever preach. I hope that it's not. Um, but it could be the last sermon that I ever preach. Uh, do we in any way live the now in light of the then? Are we in any way about the business of preparing for our last day on this day? But Psalm 23, David says, Death, the most frightening thing, no fear. Why? For you are with me. Pastor Mike just read for us Psalm 46, all about the presence of God. The whole storyline of Scripture is all about the presence of God, given, lost, graciously restored. The whole storyline of your life is meant to be all about the presence of God. And Psalm 46 tells us three times about the powerful presence of God and its effects. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. So the psalmist takes the, the worst and biggest thing imaginable, the world itself falling apart and collapsing around you. Don't terrible circumstances sometimes feel like your very world is collapsing and then falling apart? The psalmist says, even in that, we will not fear. How? Only the presence of God. So I outlined Psalm 46. God is present. Do not fear. God is present. You are safe. God is present, behold, and trust. Why can we trust? Because the present God is the powerful God, and the present powerful God who has promised to keep you. He promises to keep you. We read it in Psalm 121 last time. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? That is such an important question for you to honestly answer for yourself. The earth is giving away or terrible circumstances are surrounding you. Where do you turn to and look for help? Psalm 121, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What a word that is. That's a promise to God's people, from God's word in Psalm 121. And here in John 17, we have the Son of God praying the promises of God for the people of God, for you and for me. And God will not and he cannot fail to keep his promises. He is your keeper 
if you are in Christ, he will keep you. I've been going to PT for the last month, getting old, trying to get this busted hip figured out here. And I was sitting in the weight room, wait, the, not the weight room, the waiting room, and this, there was this book on the table that caught my eye. It was a book about trauma, and I just kind of noticed it and looked at it and didn't pay much attention to it. And then that very week, someone asked me about that same book. So I was like, well, it's a sign. I better read the book. Um, and so it's been pretty good. It's incomplete, but it's good. But in it, towards the end, the author is arguing that the single most important factor that keeps a truly traumatic event from traumatizing an individual, and effect, trauma is it's, it's an event that, is, that it causes like overwhelming and devastating response that we don't even know how to, to deal with. And he's saying though, the one factor in preventing trauma from becoming traumatic is its community. He says it's the presence of people. It's a, it's a support group around the individual to walk through the trauma with them. Amen. And then he said this. Oh, this is so good. He's talking about that and the people and all these things. And he said this. Safety and terror are incompatible. That's big. Safety and terror are incompatible. As, I would argue, are safety and just regular old fear and anxiety and so on. He's arguing there that safety is found in relationship, in the presence of persons that care and help. And so if you have that relational safety there, hey, no need for the trauma, no need for the terror. A lot of that's true. But then look at what we have here. We have the presence of the person. We have the person of perfect power who cares for us and helps us and keeps us. Who keeps us and will not and cannot fail to keep us. If you are in Christ, then it is objectively true that you are eternally safe. Safety and terror are incompatible. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Do you live your life in light of the fact that God himself, the maker of heaven and earth, sovereign over all, keeps us? That you have perfect safety in him that nothing romans 8 can separate you from the love of christ nothing but here's where it gets a little tricky god keeps us that is wonderful news i hope that is comforting news but here's where maybe we're less comforted less comforted by it than we should be what does he keep us from point number two god keeps us from the world and the evil one Jesus has prayed in verse 11, keep them. He has declared in verse 12 that he has kept them and guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except. Look at verse 12. Note that except. Some people freak out about this verse. Some who hate the doctrines of grace and the doctrines of the perseverance or preservation of the saints will point to this verse and say, look, except salvation can be lost. Look, none of them were lost except Judas was lost. Therefore, it is possible for salvation to be lost. Uh, we're not going to give this much time. There are enough perfectly clear verses that make this interpretation impossible and heretical and terribly tragic. Back to chapter 10 in the Good Shepherd, verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's what it means to be kept by God. He who begins a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's why I so love the doctrines of grace and the God of grace. 
If I was able to mess up my salvation or lose my salvation, I would. My only hope is that I am entirely in God's hands, entirely kept by God. It is his grace that initiates my salvation, his grace that sustains my salvation, his grace that will complete my salvation. And so this verse says nothing against uh, that fact. In fact, it affirms it. Judas is there called the son of destruction. I won't bore you with the grammar. That's in the nominative case. That means we have a new subject. Nominative is a subject. So the verse really says something like, not one of them has been lost, period, but the son of destruction, he has been lost, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Judas in no way proves that a Christian can be lost but he does prove that if we are not born again by the grace of God, and if we are not kept by the grace of God, then we too would have no hope. We too would be sons and daughters of destruction. For the forces arrayed against us, both without and within, are far too great for us. That's why Christ prays. Look at verse 13. But now, Father, he says, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Again, hold on to that thought this whole time. Don't forget verse 13. We're about to consider the conflict and the struggle. Don't consider that apart from the joy. This is what Christ is ultimately up to. This is what he is doing and working towards for his people. It's joy. That, that's the plan. That's the goal. That will be the outcome. You will be kept and joy will be the result. And it's his perfect joy fulfilled in us. That's remarkable. But how? Verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. And so we're back again to the world. You never get away from the world in John's Gospel. Remember, world in John's gospel is not the created world. It's not the, the beauty of God's creation that declares his glory. You should love that world. You should get out in that world. You should go stand in Jim and Juliet's garden right there and just stare at the plants and the flowers that are taller than us, that are growing over and are just beautiful and declaring God's glory uh, to us. Listen, you, that world is good. You need to love that world and use that world. I'm increasingly starting to understand how much I need God's creation. So get out in it and consider it and love it. Get off your screen and get outside. Instead of head down staring at a screen, head up staring at the sky. Right? You need that world. That world is good. That's not what John means when he uses the word world. He means the fallen world of mankind. He means the moral, spiritual world set up and arrayed entirely in opposition to the God, the very maker of that world. John 1.10, the word, the true light was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That's all you need to know about the world. The world was made through him, the world refused to know him. John 3.19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. God himself comes into the world, the world he made in Christ, the God of all glory and beauty and compassion and kindness, and the world refuses to know him, recognize him, love him. The world chooses to love darkness and death rather than light 
and life. That's the world. That's why 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think that is a verse that the Western church could stand to take a lot more seriously uh, these days. Do you think about it? How could we love that which hates the one that we claim to most love, our, our Father, the God who made us and saved us, who was with us and keeps us? How could we have intimate fellowship and communion and, and relationship with that which hates that which we say we have the most intimate fellowship and union and relationship with? Again, we're going to get to this next week. We're not taken out of the world. We are to have mission into the world. We're, we're sent to the world with the good news of the gospel. Uh, but that's different than loving the world and being in fellowship and communion um, with the world. The world, by definition, hates the God that we say that we love. We cannot love that which hates him. 1 John 5.19, John tells us, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so Jesus prays in verse 15, Again, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil. The Greek there literally just says, keep them from the evil. It's a substantive adjective. There's, there's no noun. The, the evil what? It could just be evil in general, or most people think it's the evil one. There's not much of a difference either way. Because evil ultimately traces back to the evil one, and we are in desperate need to be kept from both of them. I lean toward the evil one being the correct translation because, again, Jesus is asking not that we be taken out of the world. Or he's, he's leaving, but he's leaving his people in the world, the world which lies in the power of the evil one. The world, Ephesians 2.2, which follows the prince of the power of the air. The world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, of which Satan is the little g God, blinding the minds of unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Listen, that's what Jesus prays that we be kept from. Sin and evil, represented by Satan and the world that happily follows him and hates God and his people. Two questions of application on this. First off, is this how we think of the world at all? Is this how we think of first the, the people in the world around us, your, your coworkers, your family members, the people on the train, the people that you interact with at the stores and, and restaurants. Right? Do we see these people through the lens of Scripture as those who are dead in their trespasses and sins? Not that we can in any way be like, ha-ha, right, look at me, I'm, I'm better than you. No, 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 because we understand that we were just like them and have been saved only by the grace of God so that there can be an actual compassionate care and concern for them to give to them that which is their only hope of life which is the good news of the gospel. Do we think of the world around us as sinners who hate God and are separated from him and will be so for eternity, apart from his grace and apart from the gospel? Do you look at the world as something that Jesus has to pray that you be kept from? Or do you actually look at it as something quite appealing and attractive? Let's be honest, the world is often quite impressive and quite alluring. It's so sparkly and shiny and tempting. There is temporary pleasure to be found there. 
And we have hearts still quite prone to love the world and the things of the world. We should all of us honestly assess our relationship to the world that hates the Father that we claim to love. Jesus says the world hated them. Does the world in any way hate us? Yeah, let's be clear. Not because we are jerks. If the world hates you and you're just a jerk, well, that's not what we're talking about here. Stop being a jerk. But does the world in any way hate us because it is evident that we are not of the world? Not about the things of the world. Not following in lockstep with what the world says. We must be and do and love. Can the world even tell that there's anything different about us? You know, you get to Peter, and Peter's assumption in, in 1 Peter is that people will ask us about the reason that we have um, for hope. And there must be something within us that they're seeing that is different that causes them to ask that. Maybe have missed that part of our, of our evangelism. Can, can the world see anything different in us that, that sets us apart from the world? Jesus says the world hates his followers because he has given us his word. Does it? It's a question at least worth our consideration. Second question of application. That was multiple questions, I guess. Is this what you want? And is this what you pray to be kept from? Like I said, I feel like I've been injured for the last two years. It's relatively minor. It's not that big of a deal. It's nothing compared to what many people are suffering. But it's, it's always there, and I'm always aware of it, and I don't like it. I would like to be kept from injury and sickness and suffering. I would like to be kept from difficult people who just seem to delight in making life difficult. I want to be kept from difficulty in general. But guess what? I am nowhere in scripture promised that I will be kept from any of that. That's not what this is about. And that's not what matters. My comfort and my ease and my silly little earthly goal, goals don't really, don't eternally matter. And so Christ here does not pray for those things. God does not promise me those things. But Christ does pray for, and God's word does promise, far greater and better things. If I could just start to believe that the all-knowing God actually knows better than the no-knowing me. That the, the God of perfect knowledge actually knows what's better for me and what is for my good than I do. No, God, you're wrong. I've got this. I understand this better than you do. That's what we're saying. That's what I'm saying in my discontent, my, my complaint, my, my discouragement, all of those things. And so Jesus here prays for me and he prays for you that we be kept from the world and the evil one. Now, what does that really mean? How does God do that? Point number three. God keeps us by sanctifying us. Catch this. Go back to the middle of verse 11. This is really interesting. Remember, it's the middle of verse 11 that Jesus starts the petitioning, asking for us. And notice how he starts. Look at what he says. Holy Father, Pater Hagias. That's interesting because he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that anywhere else ever again. Jesus never refers to God as Holy Father except for right there. And it's, again, it's Father again and again and again throughout the book, and that's huge. God is our Father. Don't ever forget 1527. The Father himself 
loves you. And that's, that's enough right there to keep you. So Father, throughout the book, throughout the Gospels, but only here, Jesus says, Holy Father. Why? Because of his petition for his people. Because of verse 17. Go from middle of 11 to 17. Holy Father, Hagias, sanctify them. Hagiazo. It's the same root word. It's the same root idea. And English just kind of fails us here because we have no holy verb. We have no holyfy them or something. But in the Greek, it's all the same word and idea. What does it mean? That's going to take us a couple of weeks. But you probably know that the basic idea of holiness is it's set-apartness. It's, it's that which is other, that which is distinct. God is holy. In fact, God is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6.3, the only attribute of God that is tripled like that. So it's referred to as the tri-sagion, the, the thrice holy. The point is that God is not like us. He is transcendent. He is other. God's holiness is everything about God that, that sets him apart um, from us. It is his transcendent greatness, his absolute beauty, his, his moral perfection. He is God and there is no other. He is holy. And so holy Father... Jesus prays, sanctify them. And listen, that's how God keeps us. He keeps us by sanctifying us. He does not keep us by taking us out of the world. He does not keep us by protecting us from hard and difficult circumstances. He leaves us in the world and in the fallen world and all the difficulties, the world that is sin and darkness, the world that lies in the power of the evil one. Therefore, to keep us, to keep us from that, God sanctifies us. He sets us apart from the world and sets us apart for himself and he makes us holy. And I think that Jesus is praying for both of those things. I think that sanctification is about both of those things. And this is important. You'll often hear something like justification precedes sanctification. Carefully, that's not technically true. Scripture speaks, Scripture speaks of sanctification in two ways. And we have almost entirely lost the first way. And that's not good. Look down at verse 19. We'll close with this, but let's look at it here. We're not closing with it yet. Don't get your hopes up. We'll come back to it. Jesus says in verse 19, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified, in truth. That's an unhelpful translation. The ESV goes with it because of how we almost exclusively use the term sanctify now. But it's the exact same word there. There's a footnote in your ESV showing you that. What Jesus technically says in the Greek is that I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Now, what could that possibly mean? If we think that sanctification is just the ongoing, gradual process by which we are made holy, then there is no way in which it can be said that Jesus was sanctified. For he was already, and always has been, and always will be perfectly holy. That's why we have to recover the first and foundational sense of this important word. To be sanctified is to be set apart for God 
and his work. It is in this sense that I somewhat provocatively say that sanctification comes before justification. Remember verse 9? Look up at verse 9. We've looked at this for a while. Remember what Jesus says? I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Remember all those possessive pronouns that follow in verse 10. Mine, yours, mine, yours. And don't forget this primary identity. You are his before the foundation of the world. Before you were created. Before you sinned. Just read Ephesians 1. You were his. You were marked out. Chosen before time to be his. That is, you were set apart by him and for him. And even in the practical outworking of our salvation, sanctification technically precedes justification. Like basically all the epistles, Paul opens 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 1 Corinthians in verse 2, writing to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, past tense, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Same word again. And then much of the rest of the book deals with how terrible the Corinthians are and how much of a mess they are. But Paul opens by calling them saints, hagias, holy ones, by the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 6, you know, washed, sanctified, justified. And Paul puts sanctified before justified. It's very interesting what he does there. But we'll talk about this more next week, but we've got to keep in mind that Scripture refers to two things when it talks about sanctification. It talks both about our positional sanctification, we are called out and we are set apart by and for God. What we think of primarily when we talk about sanctification is the second, our progressive sanctification, positional and progressive. And the progressive is the ongoing work by which God actually transforms us into what he has set us apart for and declared about us. The, the progressive process by which we are actually made holy. And I think that Jesus has to be praying for both. Our positional sanctification carries with it a missional component. Verse 18, I have sent them into the world. So they're, they're set apart, they're, they're sanctified uh, for that. And that missional component to the wicked world as representatives of the Holy Father requires progressive sanctification, requires actual holiness. So Jesus is praying for our holiness to the glory of God for the good of the world. We cannot rightly represent a holy God without actually being holy. And Jesus is praying for our holiness as the means of our keeping in and from the evil world to which we are sent on mission. 1 Peter 1.16, quoting Leviticus 11.44, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's, just, that's part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. We are sons of the Holy Father, and like Father, like Son. We know that none of us are perfect. We know that we will never reach uh, perfect holiness, that's not what's promised. That's called glorification. That is uh, still yet to come when Christ uh, returns. But, listen, if you have no interest in holiness, you have no interest in the pursuit of holiness, if you are not at least concerned with how you can become more 
like the Lord because that's what sanctification is. That's what God is doing. He's conforming us into the image of his son, his holy son. That's not a concern of yours, how you can become truly holy and set apart to God and his work. Well, Lloyd-Jones, I'll just blame it on him. Lloyd-Jones says, unless a person is concerned about this question, he or she is not a Christian at all. Because this is who God is. And this is what God, by grace, is doing in us, his people. He has set his people apart, declared them to be holy, and he will make them holy. How does he do that? Well, that's what we're going to consider next week, and the next week, and the next week. But quickly, point number four, here's how. God sanctifies us by the truth. So what I want to look at in great detail next week, progressive sanctification next week. It only happens by and through the truth. God's word is truth. But for now, I want us to actually close focusing on the positional sanctification. I want us to focus on the first and foundational how of holiness. And again, it's verse 19. Look at verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. What does that mean? How does Jesus sanctify himself? How does he set himself apart for God and the work of God? Remember verse 4, look up at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What work? Look back at verse 3. To give eternal life to all whom you have given me. What's the work? It is the life of God's people through the death of God's Son. It is the justification of God's people through the condemnation of God's Son. How does Christ sanctify himself? By the cross. The cross that is for us. He says, for their sake, he sanctifies himself. Listen, if I have lost you, come back now and listen here. If you are visiting or are not a believer, listen here because this is the part that you most need to hear. The perfectly holy God requires you to be perfectly holy to live and to be with him. You are not perfectly holy, and I am not perfectly holy. And the Bible is clear. The wages of sin is death. That's why we all have the, the guilt. That's why we all carry around uh, that, that feeling of filthiness and, and not living up to some standard and, and just things not being right. That's, that's the sin that we all have. The wages of sin is death. We have all of us in our sin rejected the God of life. All that is left for us when we reject life is death. And since we have all done this already, none of us can be perfect. You could go, you get 100% from here on out and it doesn't matter. You don't, you're already behind. You can't get to 100%. None of us can achieve God's perfect standard for relationship with him and heaven and life and joy in peace. There is none righteous, no, not one. But God, but verse 19, but the gospel, the message that we proclaim, the good news is that Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not and would not do for ourselves. He has sanctified himself. He has been set apart and sent to accomplish the work of salvation for sinners, for his people. And he does that by taking our place. In Jesus, God has become man to represent us, 
to live the perfect life that we were supposed to live, to die the death that we deserved for failing to live that perfect life, and then three days later he rose again. And by grace, if you repent and believe, if you turn away from your sin and trust in him, then you will live. You will be sanctified and set apart from the world and sin and death and set apart for heaven and holiness and life. It is nothing that we do, but only what Christ does for us, and we receive it by faith. That's the only way that anyone can be saved and that anyone can be holy. And so we are sanctified first and foremost by the death of Christ in our place. It's his death and resurrection that sanctifies us. And then as we're going to see, it's, it's, it's this truth, it's this word that is living and active in which the good news is recorded for us by which God's Holy Spirit works in us and through us to progressively sanctify us and make us more and more holy. It's as we take this word in and as we read and think on it and pray it and speak it deeply and frequently as Peter put it a few weeks ago. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Church, this is how God keeps us. He keeps us by the word incarnated, Jesus Christ, and the word inscripturated, the Bible. And this is why you have no hope, and you will have no peace, and you will have no joy apart from this word. None. Oh, you can get all the help that you want. Apart from this, it will not be the help that you need. This is truth, and truth is life. And this is why we began with knowledge. We are really good at knowing our problems. We are really good at focusing on them. How are we at knowing our Lord and focusing on God's promises? This is why Peter blesses this church, saying, not may you get out of those problems and troubling circumstances, but he says, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's persecution, there's suffering, there's death, and his prayer for them is that they would grow in the knowledge of the Jesus who is life. For the knowledge of him, the one who came that we might have abundant life, the one who died that we might have abundant life, the one who is working for his joy to be in us. It, it is living and active knowledge of him through his living and active word that makes us progressively holy and happy. And so pray this week as we prepare for John 17, 17 next week. Pray this week for that which Christ prays for you in this text. Pray that God would keep you from the world and the evil one by sanctifying you through his word. And let me pray that for all of us right now as we close. Let me let me pray. Father, please sanctify us in the truth. It is your word that is truth. Father, there are all kinds of things that we want to be kept from. Now, some of those are good desires, and legitimate things that we desire to be kept from. Father, those are important things. But Father, help us to focus on the most important things. Father, help our desire to be kept from that which Christ prays that we would be kept from, from the world that is opposed to you and that hates you. Father, for the evil one who disguises himself as an angel of light who is so effective 
at drawing us away from the Lord and, and from life that is found in him. Father, keep us, please. And keep us by sanctifying us and making us holy. Father, as we begin to work through this verse, help us to see what holiness really is and the true blessedness of holiness. Father, so often it feels like nothing more than not doing some of the fun things that the world gets to do. Father, help us to see holiness as, as completeness. Father, as uh, the, the true blessedness and joy and happiness that is found in being with you and in being like you. Father, you are a being of uh, complete perfection. Father, that means that you are the being of complete and perfect joy. And having perfect knowledge, you know where and how we will find that perfect joy that we are all so desperate to find. Father, may you help us to find it in you this week. Father, I pray for Woodside Community Church and for every single one of us that you would sanctify us in the truth, Lord. Your word is truth. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.